0: Father God, we come before you this morning in the powerful and matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we begin to open your word, we ask here and now that you would incline our hearts to your very heart. Lord, it's so easy to come and to be here and be present physically, but be detached and have our minds and our hearts somewhere else. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would graciously, kindly, and supernaturally give us a focus on your beauty, God. That you would open our eyes as we look in your word and that your glory would shine forth. We know, Lord, that simply opening your word and reading it for understanding is not enough. We know that your word is not simply a a history book it's not simply a book that you've given us to how to be better people, but that you have given us your word so that we can hear your voice and see your glory. So open our eyes that we would be able to do so. Father, as we open your word, we come as a church, not simply as individuals. We come as a church who are all indwelt by you, Holy Spirit. So we ask that here now collectively you would unite our hearts to fear your name, to rightly reverence you in everything we think, say, do and desire now. We ask that you would satisfy us, Lord, with your perfect, unchanging, unending, steadfast love. We live in a world that is starved for love, but we worship you, a God whose love knows no ends. So may we find our satisfaction and our delight in your love for us through Christ. Would you lead us, Lord, into all truth, especially in a world that continues to lift up lies. Make us people of truth. May it saturate every part of our being. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, God, and I ask here and now that you, Holy Spirit, would take the word proclaimed and that you would plant it deep within the hearts of those who know you, love you, and serve you, That you would shape us more in Christ's image. And for those here perhaps who do not know Jesus, that here and now you would give them a new heart, a heart of faith, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel according to Luke. So if you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 31 The 19th century poet, Charles, and I'm probably mispronouncing this last name, Baldier, is credited with writing the following, quote, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. End quote read that again. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. Nothing's changed. Our culture increasingly tells us that all that exists is the material world, that there are no devils. There are no demons. Heaven and hell live inside us. I hear that often. but they're dead wrong. The world we live in is dead wrong because there is a spiritual realm. There is a real devil and he is wicked and evil and seeks to destroy and devour. He does have a legion of demons who seek to possess and influence both people and cultures. And so today, as we look at this passage in Luke chapter four, we are going to see that very thing. We are going to see a man who is possessed by a demon, and how Jesus confronts them. And what we'll see in this passage, our big idea, is that we need to submit to the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns both in the seen and unseen realm. I'll repeat that one more time. We need to submit to the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over the seen and unseen realm. So let's read our passage, and then we'll jump in. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? and out into every place in the surrounding region. Our first point this morning is the authority of Jesus' preaching. Verses 31 through the first part of 34. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Jesus, we saw previously, had been in, in Nazareth and he had gone to the synagogue and he had preached there. And he was rejected. His message was outright rejected. They stuck to take him to a cliff and put him to death. And he slipped through their midst. And so Jesus now comes to Capernaum. And Capernaum was a major trade and economic center in that area. And so Jesus comes and he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He begins to preach. As we'll see as we continue to work through Luke's gospel, this was the normal practice of Jesus. Jesus chiefly came to be a preacher. He came to be a proclaimer of the good news, the gospel. He came to give exposition on the word of God so that people would see that he is the fulfillment of all they had longed for. Jesus performed many signs and wonders, and we'll see those. It's important to recognize that at this point That all of those signs, all of those wonders, as great as they are, chiefly came to authenticate who he was and the message he preached. And that's really important because today in our culture, especially as we try to tell people about Jesus, there is an infatuation with the signs and the wonders. People longing to see something new, something fresh. Let us see, I want to see a healing I want to see this. You can go to false churches like Bethel, and they'll say, look, angel dust is falling from the sky. It's really just something about a Hobby Lobby being pumped through the ventilation system. People are just yearning for the supernatural. This is why sometimes you'll see, uh, it's kind of comical, but people just looking for it, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. I remember years ago, there was a big uproar because somehow they had seen, was it the face of Jesus or Mary in a tortilla? And the Roman Catholic Church took it and, and they put it in the case and they said, look, it's supernatural. People always looking for something. And the imagination then runs wild. But here we see that Jesus enters the synagogue and he preaches, which is important for us to remember that what people have always needed and what people will always need is the word of God proclaimed. That's what's needed. And this is what Jesus does. Now, interestingly enough, in these verses, we actually aren't even told what Jesus preached. Maybe it's a continued exposition on Isaiah 61, some believe, but we don't know. But we do know he's preaching the word. And as he's preaching the word, notice the response to it. And as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. When Christ preaches, astonishment comes about. That word astonished, it means that the people in the synagogue were utterly overwhelmed. They were amazed, they were astounded, they were in shock. That word literally means to strike someone out of their senses. They didn't know what to make of it. And the reason they were astonished was because Jesus was not your run of the mill preacher. He didn't sound like every other rabbi. He preached, it tells us, with authority. Verse 32. Astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. When Jesus opened his mouth and proclaimed the word. It had power. It was commanding. It had the ring of truth. It was undeniable. These are people who are not accepting him as Messiah, but they cannot deny. He doesn't preach like everybody else. And then, of course, it would have authority. Matthew 28 18, Jesus tells his disciples, Go there, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus taught with authority because he is the authority. But there was something that marked Jesus' preaching different. Than what they were used to. Back then, typically, what would happen is the rabbi or the person who would do the teaching would restate some of the teachings that they have had passed down to them. They would restate the, the traditions they had been taught. When Jesus goes to teach, he doesn't do that. Jesus' exposition of scripture is different because he doesn't quote men, he doesn't appeal to traditions. We see uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The Lord Jesus Christ gives them the authoritative meaning of the word of God. He preaches with clarity he preaches with conviction. He preaches with authority. He preaches with insight. He preaches as one filled and empowered by the spirit of God. He preaches the word of God as the son of God. <coughs> and everybody there can't deny it. They may not rightly perceive who he is, but they recognize this is different. And again, there's a word for us here as a church. Church. We are to follow the example laid forth here by our Lord. We are to be more filled with the word of God than with the words of men. It's the word of God that carries authority. It's the word of God that carries power. A man or a woman of God that is filled with the spirit of God and proclaims the word of God is a force to be reckoned with. This is something that over the years God has convicted me immensely of. It's very easy to fill a sermon with lots of quotes from this theologian, and that theologian, and an illustration here. And to be perceived as an intelligent individual, a well-read individual, somebody who has really cultivated the gift of rhetoric. But you know what happens is that it's so easy for people to be awed by the wrong thing. What people need is the word of God, and that's it. To the degree that there's a quote or an illustration or something here that can support that, great. But even as you minister and as you share the word of God with people, I would just encourage you, it's not that I'm saying not to read and study and do all that, but don't be saying, well, this book says this, and that book says this, or this sermon." Just give them the word. Gives him the word of God. Jesus stood or sat during his teaching then, but Jesus gave the word. He didn't give all the teachings of rabbis and traditions of men, he declared the full counsel. And that's a word for us. And so as he does so, one of the first responses we see is astonishment among the people there. But it's not just astonishment. Because we're going to be introduced to a rather interesting character. The word of God preached will astonish, but the word of God preached rightly in the, in the power of God will also reveal. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, this is the first mention of demon possession in Luke's gospel. And when we talk about somebody who had an unclean spirit or is demon possessed, what that means is there is an individual and there's a demon that has taken control or influence of that person. It doesn't mean necessarily that they are kind of in this trans autonomous state, but it could be that at various moments the demon would have control over them or overall would have a strong influence on their thought patterns, on their thought life. It, your thoughts will reflect in your actions so, so this demon lives in this in this man and notice it says this is an unclean demon as if it needed that extra word but it's just highlighting and we'll see the contrast later to Christ that word unclean it means morally corrupt it carries a sense of evil Now, I don't know if you've considered this. Jesus is in the synagogue. So just chilling there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day is a demon. The demon came to church. Think about that. Maybe he's there every week. That's startling. The demon may have better church attendance than some people. Think about that. Has anybody noticed? I don't know. But we're going to notice now why. See, the demon didn't seem ever provoked. He never had to reveal himself when people were just proclaiming the traditions of men or restating teachings. But now when the son of God stands up and proclaims the word of God with authority and unleashes the Bible, so to speak, it would have been the Old Testament. The demon responds. He reveals himself. Notice the demon initiates this interaction. Church, this is what happens when the word of God is rightly proclaimed. When the word of God is rightly proclaimed, it will reveal the darkness in our midst. And it may even reveal the demons in our midst. The word of God reveals. This is startling to me that there's a demon in the synagogue, a demon in the house of the Lord. I mean, I'm sitting here working on this passage and I had to stop multiple times because if we believe the word of God to be true, then we have to entertain the possibility that at any given moment, in any given church, there could be a demon present. Now, what would that look like? I think there's quite a few demons present in a lot of quote unquote churches. I think a demon run church would look like a pro-choice affirming church. A demon-indwelt church would be an LGBTQIA, let's keep adding letters, affirming church. An all roads lead to heaven church. A hey, give your money, just keep giving more money and God will bless you type of church. A Kenneth Copeland type church. I will blow upon the congregation my breath and heal them of COVID. I'll give money. There's definitely demons in churches. There might be demons in pulpits. We have to take this serious. Seeing that this man is possessed by a demon also reminds us that the wickedness we see in our world, in our society, in our backyards is at least in part, if not fully, due to demonic activity. Demonic possession, demonic influence. We tend to take our idea of demon possession from Hollywood, which is wrong. The devil is no fool. He's subtle, he's cunning. He's not walking all funny, coming out from closets, demon possession, somebody scaling the ceiling. Remember, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So the influence can be very subtle. But our culture, again, our culture is a culture under demonic influence. And if churches do not safeguard, protect the gospel, as Paul talks in the book of Galatians, then what's in society will find its way to the church. We live in a society that says abortion is good. That, gender, that children should have be physically mutilated in the name of gender dysphoria, that sexual degeneracy is freedom and an expression, that the government legislates and encourages drug usage, where murder is everywhere. You want to know what a society under demonic influence looks like? That. And we see churches... Allowing that into the churches. So there are definitely demons within the church. So we must, as a church, follow Christ and preach the pure word of God. And know that as we do so as a church, not simply from the pulpit, that every single one of you have been entrusted with the ministry of the word. As you rightly proclaim the word of God in your homes, in your communities in your neighborhoods wherever you are the word of god has a revealing effect and it will reveal the darkness and it will reveal those who are overtaken by the darkness jesus stood or keep saying stood just for our habit jesus was there he proclaimed the word of god right When the word of God exalts Christ, sin is exposed. When the word of Christ is rightly proclaimed, churches will be pure. When the word of Christ is rightly proclaimed, the Bible will be authoritative. And when the word of Christ is rightly proclaimed, you'll see darkness driven back. We see that here in this moment. The demon could have stayed quiet. He didn't have to reveal himself. But as Christ taught, got under his skin, he couldn't stay silent. He felt targeted. And he revealed himself. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is the charge of the hour. I pray, and I ask you to pray, that our church and our elders would contend to hold fast to this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching and having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When elders of a church do that, they are following in the steps of Christ as he entered the city of Gagnon's talk. Notice it doesn't just, the demon isn't simply revealed by Jesus' teaching, but the demon's also provoked. You see his words here, the demon says. It says, cried out with a loud voice. It means that he shrieked at the top of his lungs. He hears the word of God and his ears can take it. And start, imagine, imagine you're sitting in the synagogue, right? You've seen, you know, Bob every week there, just quietly at synagogue on Sabbath. And here stands up, right? Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. You've heard some reports about him. Like, we'll see what he's going to do. And he starts teaching, and all of a sudden, Bob shrieks at the top of his lungs. Right? Talk about throwing off a service. This would be startling, terrifying. What did people start thinking? Right? A conflict has just ensued. So the preaching of God astonished, revealed, and now provokes. The demon can't take it, and I think we've all been there. Have you ever talked to somebody you had a good relationship with them, and the minute you start giving the word of God, it's almost as if something otherworldly happens. The, the eyes change, the the attitude. It's just you would feel like, "Whoa, where is this coming from?" They just become hostile and angry. I'm like, I didn't. We were having a great conversation. This is what the Word of God does. For those who hate the Lord, the Word of God will provoke wickedness in them. It'll provoke their flesh, their sin. Now, I do want to take a moment and offer an explanation about demon possession. I got an email a few weeks ago, actually, about this very thing. So I want to give a little bit more information. First and foremost, as it relates to demon possession, don't get your theology from Hollywood. The vast majority of demon possessions are found within the four gospels during the ministry of Christ. So there is a very close connection between the life and ministry of Jesus and demon possession. Because with Jesus coming and and living out his ministry in the flesh, a spiritual war took place. The birth of Christ is really a declaration of war that the kingdom of God has now entered into time and will overtake the kingdom of darkness. So, when Jesus comes and he begins casting out demons, Jesus is showing his his supremacy, his lordship, his dominion over Satan and his army. And with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then his exaltation at the right hand of God the Father, publicly Jesus shows that he is over and above all of them. So as we think about ourselves, notice in none of the pastoral, none of the epistles that we heed from Paul or the general epistles, not once will you find a charge for Christians to cast out demons. You are never told to cast out a demon. And you'll never see a Christian demon possessed. What do we know to be true? We know in Ephesians 6 that there is a spiritual war. We know that we are to put on the full armor of God. We know that we are to fight against sin, but we are not told to cast out demons. James 4, 7 tells us to resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us to be on guard against Satan. Ephesians 4, 27 tells us not to allow the influence of Satan and his demons into our lives. And what we are told time and time and time again to do is to proclaim the gospel. So in the rare event that you saw someone, you encountered someone demon-possessed, you don't need to run and find holy water and a crucifix. You simply need to preach the gospel. It is the power of the gospel that sets people free. People can be demon-possessed. Unbelievers can be demon-possessed. Those who are not followers of Christ. Satan is real, demons are real. If you ever come across, and the reality is you've probably come across people that are demon-possessed, you just don't think about it in that term because you're so we're so conditioned by the outliers that do happen. I have a buddy who did a street preaching outside of an abortion clinic. I've seen some of the videos and You'll see people that the demonic almost voice will rise up out of them in anger and hostility. You preach the gospel. That's what we do. You want to attack a demon? Preach Christ. Christ crucified. Because that's how we're set free. And I repeat again, a Christian cannot be demon possessed. I believe it's 2 Corinthians 6. In 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. We talked about not being unequally yoked for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he goes on. Where Christ reigns, darkness doesn't. The Spirit of God lives in the people of God. And so you can rest assured that those who are indwelt by the spirit will not be indwelt by a demon. I just wanted to give a brief word because that's an important question that's out there that people often think about. So we saw the preaching, the authority of Jesus preaching and how it astonishes, how it reveals, how it provokes. Next, we see the authority of Jesus as the Holy One of God. Verse 34, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon has good theology. The demon affirms first and foremost that Jesus is actually true. Notice he's affirming here who Jesus is. He affirms he's truly man. You are Jesus from Nazareth. You are the son of Joseph. You are an actual physical human being. Then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon recognizes Jesus is not a mere man. He's not simply a teacher, but that he is the Messiah. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, quote, Atheism is a strong thing. Even the devil never fell into vice. The devil's not an atheist. Demons aren't Asian. They recognize that Jesus is who he is. He calls him the Holy One of God. That's a messianic title. If you were to look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 35, when the angel is speaking to Mary, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. A little, in a little bit here in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, we see another interaction of a demon. And the demon says in verse 41, and the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. So when this demon in front of the entire synagogue says you are the holy one of God, he is saying you're the Messiah. You're the promised deliverer. See the contrast now? This demon was called unclean. Jesus is called the holy one, the pure one. There's a contrast here. Interestingly, the demon sees Jesus more clearly than those in the synagogue or how those in the, that were in Nazareth. The issue isn't that demons don't have enough knowledge of Christ. It's that they don't love him. They hate him. But they do see him clearly for who he is. They know their end. And because this demon recognizes that he is the Holy One of God, he speaks of, did you come destroy us? He he first of all says, ha. It's almost as if this, this demon was caught by surprise and gripped with fear when Jesus showed up at synagogue. And when he sees him, he recognizes who he is and he recognizes that it tells us in 1 John 3.8 that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So he says, did you come to destroy us? Now, who's us there? Well, there's actually two meanings here, church. Us can be all the other demons, again, pointing to 1 John 3.8. But it could also be, did you come to destroy us? Did you come to destroy me and this man that I've possessed? Only way you're getting rid of me, Jesus, is if you get rid of him. We'll see a little bit later that this seems to be in mind because it says that the man was unharmed. The demon knows beyond a shadow of a doubt The Messiah stands before me, the Son of God, and he has the power to get rid of me. Every time demons come around Jesus, we see that interaction. When Jesus uh, sees the man that was possessed, that says, by legion, they say, don't destroy us, let us go into the pigs. There's two questions for us to consider here. As we look at this demon recognizing the authority of Jesus as the Holy One of God. The demon has fear. The demon has good theology. Do do demons have a higher view and a deeper fear of Christ than you do? This demon's trembling. And he recognizes him. There's reverency here to some degree. Do demons have a higher view and a deeper fear of the Lord Jesus Christ than you do? Secondly, is your belief in Jesus a saving belief or a demonic belief? James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. Affirming who Jesus is and even trembling in his presence does not mean that that is a saving belief in Christ. Let me put it this way. Well, do you believe as the demons believe or do you believe as a son of daughter of God through faith in Jesus? Do you have a familial faith or a demonic one? What does that look like? What does that mean? It's more than affirming right theology. It's when you look and you have trust and faith in God through uh, trust in God through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't see, you recognize what He's capable of, but you have safety, you have assurance, and you have love that all that God is through Christ is for you. Is I will throw myself at His feet. He is my refuge. He is my shield. I will stand behind him. He will fight my battles. I recognize that he has taken my sin and I love him for it. It's not simply, oh no, there he is. There's affection behind it. The demon has fear. The demon doesn't have love. So think of your faith right now in the Lord Jesus Christ most of you here I think would affirm the right doctrine but is your heart, are your affections, is your will moved to a trust an adoration, a love a dependence, a confidence an assurance or is that lacking? Because there is, like I've said a few weeks ago there is a belief that saves but there's also a belief that could damn you there are many who believe in Christ who will not be in the kingdom of God We've seen the authority of of Jesus preaching. We've seen the authority of Jesus as the Holy One of God. And thirdly, we see the authority of Jesus over the demons. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. That word, be silent. If you were to translate, it literally means be muzzled. I guess in today's vernacular, it'd be shut your mouth. It's a strong word. And notice, Jesus didn't say, can you please be quiet? I really appreciate that. He doesn't ask him. He commands him, short, be silent, be muzzled. Shut it. And the demon does. The demon obeys. But why? I mean, why is Jesus telling this demon to be silent? I mean, he just affirmed Christ for who he really is. The demon might have seen just declared who Jesus is more truly than anybody in the synagogue. Why is Jesus telling him to be quiet? A couple of reasons. First, remember the, that a premature declaration of who Jesus is could be pro- problematic because the Jews were looking for the Messiah who would liberate them from Roman rule, and a premature declaration of things would potentially lead to the Jews trying to make him king by force. Secondly, Jesus doesn't need demons testifying about him. If demons start testifying about who Jesus is, people may get the wrong idea and who he represents. It actually happens in Luke chapter 11, verse 15, which says, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So Jesus doesn't need demons declaring his divinity. And Jesus, by telling him to be silent in the midst of the synagogue, shows his authority, his power over the spiritual realm. I mean, think about it. If you're in synagogue, you haven't seen something like this before. And all of a sudden, this man who you've known cries out, he's demon-possessed. The son of Joseph is sitting sitting there teaching. He tells him, "Be silent," and the man goes mute. He displays his authority, his power over the spiritual realm. Not only does he tell him be quiet, he says, "Come out of him," and he does. Why does the demon obey Jesus? Because Jesus is Lord. Not only does he leave the man, he doesn't harm him. It's as if the demon's like, well, I don't want to push things. The demon's defeated. Man is delivered. Jesus has the authority and power to do both of those things. You know, I marvel at how we read scripture And time and time again, we see actually demons are more obedient to Christ than we are. There has been more than one time, I think, where the spirit of God has told me to be silent and I wasn't. Because demons don't question. When Jesus declares, when Jesus commands, they obey like that because they rightly fear him and know who he is. Perhaps our lack of obedience is because we fear Jesus less than demons do. be silent, two words, come out, two words. Jesus doesn't use spells. Jesus doesn't use incantations. Jesus doesn't draw a prayer circle and try to be a circle maker to make things happen. Nope, Jesus just uses his words. Come out. The word of Christ is sufficient because the word of Christ has power. And as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we build our life on the word of Christ in the Holy Scriptures, we need to remember the word of Christ is sufficient. If you're dealing with some kind of spiritual warfare, you don't need to do all of these goofy little things. You simply need to trust and obey the word of God. The Jesus, and there's a word here for us too, though. Think about it. This is the authority of Christ. He's establishing his lordship, that he's Messiah. The Jesus who can cast the demon out is the same Jesus who will eventually cast the demons and Satan into the pit of hell. And that is the same Jesus who will cast every unbeliever into hell. Because he is Lord. And he has the power and authority to do so. So how does everybody respond? Final point. The authority of Jesus amazes, verses 36 and 37. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. At the beginning of our passage, the people were amazed, astounded, by his teaching. Now they stand amazed and astounded by his works, by the casting out of the demon from this man. One could imagine they're left speechless, perhaps a bit scared and confused. What has just happened? What is this word? What is this teaching that we've just heard and seen? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits. Rabbis weren't doing that. Scribes weren't doing that. But Jesus is. Even as I say that, I'm just reminded, so often we are not amazed and astonished by who Jesus is. I think I'd have been a pretty good Jew. I probably would have been enamored by some of the teachers and scribes and Pharisees of the day. We had that today in our celebrity culture of pastors and preachers. But the real amazement, the real astonishment should come when we hear the words of Christ and see the works of Christ. That's what should really astonish us. People saw the power and authority of Christ in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So just take a moment and ask yourself Are you astonished by who Jesus is? Truly astonished. And take that a step further because here's the reality you can be astonished by Jesus but not follow him. So first and foremost, we ought to be astonished by the word of Christ and the works of Christ. But secondly, that astonishment should lead to submitting to the power and authority of Jesus. You want to know if you have a right astonishment? Is it leading you to submission to Christ? We're not told here how they responded. Did they respond by belief? Luke's gospel tells them the majority did not. I don't want you just wowed. By Christ. I want you to be in submish, joyful submission to Him. This is the first miracle we see in Luke's gospel that Jesus performs. Up until now, there have been no miracles performed. And it's fitting that the first miracle we see is Jesus exercising His power and authority over evil and spiritual forces. Look back in chapter four with me to verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Look at this one. He has set me to what? Proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Here we see a man who was a captive. Here we see a man who was oppressed. Here we see a man who's been set free. Does this man come to faith in Christ as Messiah? We're not told. The point here isn't the response of the demon-possessed man. The point here is to see the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God. So how about for those of us sitting here this morning, perhaps, who are not... Followers of Christ. I would ask you, I would plead with you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness. To repent and trust in Jesus to be freed from the influence of Satan and perhaps the demons that possess you in his life. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 is... This is all within chapter four, right? We've seen this. We've seen Jesus in a conflict in the wilderness at war with the Satan. We see Jesus proclaiming that he comes to bring freedom. We see a demon now possessing a man and Jesus freeing them in two conflicts with spiritual forces, two victories for Christ. Christ is showing his power and authority and the ability to set free captives and the oppressed. If you are here this morning, and you have not repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are under the influence of Satan and his demons and perhaps possessed. I don't know. But you don't need to be. Because the Holy One of God can deliver, can set free. And I would plead with you to do so. And for those of us as a church here who are followers of Christ, we see here is the power and authority of Christ. So are we being a people, are you as a Christian pursuing a daily submitting to the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns over the seen and unseen realm? Are we submitting to it? Now just say, As you submit to it, may God remove that unhealthy fear sometimes we have of the spiritual realm. Sometimes we get so worried and concerned about spiritual warfare and demonic influence. That should have no fear. We should not fear that. Because we serve one who in four words can shut the mouth of a demon and cast it out of a man. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning. He has all authority and all power. Every knee will bow in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This demon, do you realize, in God's sovereignty, this demon actually is advancing the mission of Christ. I would just say, Church, take heart. Do not fear all of the spiritual darkness and influence. If you are in Christ, you are in the safest place possible. You need only submit to his power, his authority, his rule, and build your life on his word. So with that, let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do so recognizing, Lord, that we are to be a people Who not only acknowledge your power and authority, but every day seek to be in submission to it. Father, I fear from my own heart that sometimes I'm astonished but not submissive. Father, I do not want to only be astonished by your son, my Lord. But I want to be astonished to the point that I practically am submitting my thoughts, my words, my deeds, and my desires to him, under him. Father, I pray for our church that we would be a submitting people to Christ and that as we submit that we would find courage, confidence, safety and security that we are hidden in Christ and Christ is the one who has all power and authority in the heavens and in the earth. I pray, Lord, for those in our church who have family members and friends who are not followers of Christ. And as a result, they are under the influence of Satan and his army of demons. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen every single person in this church to simply proclaim the word. And that as they proclaim the word by faith, that you, Holy Spirit, would use it. To reveal and cast out, Lord, that you would bring regeneration, saving faith to those people. Father, we live in a world under the influence, perhaps even we can say under the possession of demonic darkness. And it can be so easy for us to grow fearful and despondent. We repent of that, Lord. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us to not only know, but to believe what is declared in the word of God, that you, Lord Jesus, are Lord of power and authority. That we need not fear because we have faith and perfect love cast out fear. And that we would call the world in whatever aspects we can to submit to the authority and power of the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, even today, as a moment, in a few moments, we'll celebrate through the waters of baptism. What we're celebrating is that you continue to do this work, that you continue to deliver people from darkness into your glorious light. And so we plead, we pray that that would be done more and more and more in our lives, that we would see this great delivering work, that we would see the Holy One of God exercising power and authority through the saving of souls in the midst of a dark world. And I even think about the little ones in this room, Lord. That as they sit under the preaching of the word and under the biblical instruction of their parents, that you would save them, Lord, from a world that seeks to destroy We pray these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.